Amen. Amen. All right. Now let's go. Open up your Bible to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Can you guys tell that I'm excited? All right. I'm going to be overly enthusiastic. You better catch up. This is going to happen today. This is happening. So the battle lines were drawn. Thousands of warriors were on two different sides. There were spears, shields, helmets of all different kinds. And their armors, both of their, their armors glistened in the Grecian sun. And there were helmets, the helmets that, that had like spikes sticking out of it. And riding into the center of the battlefield were two chariots carrying the king of both armies' kingdom. The kings come to the, come to the middle and have a dialogue. This was the opening scene of the movie Troy. And though they were, suppo- they were supposed to be Greek, they all somehow spoke with a British accent. Nevertheless, that's the type of thing I think about when I watch movies. I'm like, this is Greek. Why are they speaking with British accents? But nevertheless, both kings, they decided to uh, have their best fighter, their champion, uh, come forward in a one-on-one battle. Winner takes all. If, if you win, we will become subject to you. If we win, you are our subjects. The first army cheers when the first king yells out for his champion, Boagrius! And out steps a giant. This guy looks mean. And he obviously had seen a few battlefields before. The second king, Agamemnon, he calls for his champion, Achilles! And silence. Because Achilles wasn't even there. Uh, So, After a while, it took some time, but Achilles eventually showed up, and it became clear from the moment that he showed up onto the battlefield that he and his king, Agamemnon, they didn't like each other. They were pretty, they were not very fond of one another. Anyways, as Achilles was, he's walked towards, uh, boldly towards the center, towards the fight, towards this giant, he walks a little bit by Agamemnon, and he says something very interesting. He says, Imagine a king who fights his own battle. Wouldn't that be a sight? Ooh. <laughs> he just keeps going and goes to, just starts, starts to jog towards the middle, towards the giant. And the, king, and the king Agamemnon said, man, out of all these warriors, I hate him the most. <laughs> he just is like, ugh. Imagine a king who fights his own battles. Anyway, Achilles being smaller in stature doesn't seem to be very becoming, doesn't seem to be as tough as Boagrius, but he runs. He jogs towards the center, picking up speed, picking up speed. He get, two spears get thrown at him, and he gets out of the way, gets out of the way. He dodges, he jumps, and in one strike, the giant falls. The war, the battle is won. Perhaps you're like me, and you are drawn to, to stories, to movies, to, to books, where it talks about kings, good guys versus bad guys. Or my favorite is when you're left at the end of the book, and you're, you're unsure which one was really the good guy which one was the bad guy. But the truth be told, everyone here actually has a king. Sometimes it changes left to right. Whatever you place your hope in, your security in, your happiness in is your king. Everyone in our culture, everyone in our community, and everyone in this room at some point searches for a king. And if your king, and this is what I want to communicate, if your king is something other than Christ, it will never, ever satisfy It's like Achilles, and you'll find something wrong with it, and you'll switch, and you'll switch, 
and you'll switch from king to king to king, which is exactly what the Israelites did in their history. They went from king to king to king. And we started a series this summer, a series about the kings and, and their quest, the Israelites' quest for a king. And we watched after king, after king came, some did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and some did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. But all in all, their experiment, their quest for a king led to failure. People wanted a king that reflected themselves. They wanted a, a king to represent them to the nations. They wanted a king who would fight their battles for them. And ultimately, it led to offense after offense to the almighty God. So uh, what ended up happening was Assyria came in and scattered the northern kingdom of Israel. And then Babylon came in and, and carried away the kingdom of Judah. Everything was lost. Israel was in shambles. But we're ending this series talking about the greatest king ever. There is a greater king, one that won't fail. No king could compare to the ultimate king in the suffering king, Jesus. That was a great moment to hear an amen. Amen. All right. We're, moving. We're going to be Pentecostal. You're going to, you're going to wake up and you go, amen. amen. Nobody can compare to King Jesus. So if you're in a DNA group or a discipleship group, maybe you're, you read the chapter this week, Psalm chapter 2, and you might have asked yourself, why are we reading chapter 2 of Psalms when, uh, when we're talking about the kingship of Jesus? Aren't there other passages that talk about Jesus being the King of kings and the Lord of lords? The answer is yes, there are different passages that talk about Jesus as king. Many passages, many amazing passages, but why I particularly like Psalm 2 is it strategically goes through and systematically goes through the gospel. In three main points, we see what the psalmist was trying to communicate regarding the reign of his anointed. Interestingly, in Psalm, Psalm chapter 2 is, is right after Psalm chapter 1. You notice that? That's awesome. Uh, some commentators actually believe that they were meant to be read in unison. Uh, Psalm 1 described the blessing of a holy man. Uh, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Chapter 2, though, uh, talks about the reign of the Lord's anointed and goes in the opposite direction. So, Psalm 2 describes the path of the world. Psalm 1, the path of a righteous man. Psalm 2, the path of the world. So let's read verse 1 through 3 together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The very first thing we see in the first three verses is the rebellion from the king that is characteristic of the world. Rebellion from the king. So that's number one in your notes. The psalmist begins by shaking his head in disbelief. Why do the nations rage? Don't they know who they're fighting against? Don't they know that this is a battle against God Almighty that they cannot win? 
They plot in vain. Plot is the same word used in Psalm chapter 1 for the word meditate. They meditate. They scheme. Why do the nations do that? The righteous meditate on God's law. The wicked meditate on rebelling from the Lord. So what do the nations say? They said, let us burst our, their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I don't like the restrictions that religion puts on me. I want to do my own thing. I want to govern my own life. I want to go my own way. Does this sound familiar at all? Does this sound familiar? Because it should. It should. Because before we get too far, we need to recognize something. That this is us. Too often, I know it's typical, but too often when we read stories or we read or we watch movies, we like to put ourselves in the position of the protagonist, the hero or the heroine of the story. Oh, that's just the world. But me? I would never rebel against the king. How do I know that people think this way? They say, oh, not me, it's everybody else. Because if you go down to the beach and you ask a thousand people if they believe that they deserve to go to heaven, 999 would say yes, because I am a good person. They put themselves in as the hero of the story, as opposed to the villain. But this stands in direct opposition of Scripture. Romans 3 Chapter 10 through 12, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have inherited a nature from Adam that is bent on pleasing ourselves, worshiping ourselves, serving ourselves. So when something challenges us and says, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Our instinct, our sinful nature causes us to rebel, to say, no, I'm going to go my way. So we operate as a sovereign citizen, pretending to be the creator of the world, pretending that the creator of the world isn't really the king of the universe. We have to get this right, and this is under that first point, that the world's rebellion is really my rebellion insert us into the story. Each of us rebel from the Lord. And what do the nations rebel against? What does it say? Verse 2, against the Lord and you can call it out. It's okay. We'll do it. His anointed. Against the Lord and His... This is, this chapter is universally seen as a, a chapter of prophecy. It's not something that is read at a coronation of a king, but this is a prophecy about the coming Messiah Actually, the, in fact, the, the word anointed, uh, Messiah or Mashiach, which is Messiah. This, is uni- uh, this, this passage points exclusively to Jesus. Why does that matter? Because it's so clear that the name of Jesus in our day and age causes so much division. Isn't that true? There's no other religious leader or cult leader or spiritual leader, any, anybody, that causes the amount of division that the name, just the name, of Jesus causes. You don't, what we don't see is Fox News reporting, oh, let's get Zeus back into the schools again, right? While CNN is in the corner going, oh, Zeus! Was that political? Was that too political? No. I'm sorry. No, but the reality is that happened. The, the, only Jesus causes that much division. 
you can just say the name of Jesus and, and, and not, not Zeus, not Krishna, not Buddha, not even Allah and Muhammad cause that amount of division. We want to get Jesus out of everything, out of, out of our homes, because Jesus is invasive. He says he's the only way, the only way. The harsh truth is that the anointed one of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, stands in direct opposition of the sinful nature that is in our hearts, that is in our, our inclination to rebel against him as king. But that's not the end of the story. Okay, now that I got us all down in ver- point number one, right? Uh, our rebellion, it's our, we are the ones rebelling. Number two, the response of the king. Number two is response of the king. Verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And of me, and I ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You can tell a lot by someone by how they respond to given situations. Whether you're in sports or anything like that, when, when, when you see a challenge or, or you see something rise up, you see their face, their reaction. You can tell a lot. What is it saying about God here? That he's not scared of a rebellion. God laughs. He's like, oh, what do you think you're doing? I created you. Will the, cre- will the creation come against the creator? He laughs. He's not scared. He's not, go- he's not in the corner. We do not serve a God who's in the corner going, please love me, please love me, please love me. Why don't they love me? We have a God who's way bigger than that. And he laughs in the corner. Going, what? Why are you doing this? He's, uh, he laughs because his uprising of the human soul doesn't threaten him. He doesn't have to fight back. He doesn't need to plot. He doesn't need to seek counsel. He sits on the throne in heaven. Amen? Amen. Amen. Isaiah says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. God holding them in derision, simply him laughing at the feeble attempt of the dead to fight against the living. Then he, and he speaks in verse 5 uh, and 6. Then he will speak to them in wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The word of God speaks about the word of God. I have set my king. God says that his king is already set over the world on his holy hill. Zion, his king, comes. So we tend to read this passage in, at Christmas time, but uh, keep your finger here and turn over to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. We have uh, three little points that I want to go over underneath this, cha- this point number two, but uh, I want to read Isaiah 9, verse 6 through 7. Now we, we tend to read this at Christmas, right? We hear this a lot, but uh, it's important that this was prophesied many years before Jesus came. But for six, for us, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government 
shall be upon his shoulders. So this, this son is going to have some type of governmental influence. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of, the, of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This son, this begotten son, is God. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. There is a coming Messiah, and this Messiah will have some type of political influence. And he will also be God incarnate himself. God himself. He's sending himself. So there are a few parts to the coming of Jesus as our king that we must uh, remember. So number one, I'm, uh, uh, in, under the response, King Jesus is set by God demonstrating his love while revealing his wrath. Jesus demonstrates God's love while revealing God's wrath. This is so important. We, we kind of cringe up when we talk about the wrath of God, right? Oh, that's an Old Testament thing. That's not true. <laughs> it's not true. Uh, it's way more than that. Because God's mercy and grace, he sends his only begotten son to redeem your life from the pit. It's such a loving and merciful God to save us from our rebellion. But also, Jesus, so Jesus is a demonstration of God's love but he also reveals God's wrath, God's wrath against sin and death and separation. Anything that separates his people, the people of God from God himself, the Lord rages against. So he sends his son to destroy the power of sin and death. John the Beloved wrote about uh, the coming of the king once more in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and his head, on his head are many diadems. And he has a name that was written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is that the type of king that we picture when we come to Jesus? He's so much greater than we can imagine. He's going to come, and his wrath is revealed against all ungodliness. He, we have a loving God who pursues us and doesn't leave us in our sin. And he pours out his wrath on the things that separate us from him. That's love. That's real love. I was sitting with talking with a, a couple of you today, this, this week. Um, we were talking about what real love is. Is, is, is love allowing someone to uh, go through and just, just walk in their sin? Let's just say someone is sick 
oh, I love you, come over, I'm going to give you food, and I'm just going to hang out with you. Or is love telling them they need a cure? The wrath of God poured out on all ungodliness and wickedness. Read Romans chapter 1. Um, Jesus, Jesus this, is, this is the King Jesus that I, that I like. Uh, he's got tattoos of Lord, King of Kings and Lord of Lords on his thighs. His, his coat is dipped in blood, and he's coming with eyes of fire. I'm like, whoa, whoa. Is he safe? No, he's not. I'm laying in bed, and I've said this before, but I was laying in bed this week with my son, and he's been asking Haley and I to kind of uh, go over the story of Narnia again. And uh, because of the faithfulness of my parents, <laughs> they read it to me all the time. I can quote almost the whole chapters. <laughs> uh, and I'm laying in bed, I'm talking specifically about when Peter, Edmund, Lucy, and Susan come into Narnia in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. They come into Narnia, and, uh, and they go to the beaver's house. You guys remember that part? Yeah. Snowy out, and Mrs. Beaver's cooking for him and everything. And he starts to talk about uh, Aslan, Mr. Beaver. So talk about Aslan. She says, and, and he, sa and he says, and, but Aslan's on the move. And they said, who's Aslan? And he says, who's Aslan? Well, he's the king. He's the king. He's the king of the wood. Well, is he a man? Oh, no, he's not a man. He, Aslan's a lion. Oh, I, is he safe? Said Lucy, I, I, I would be most scared to meet a lion. He says, safe? Heavens, no. He's not safe, but he's good. He's good. That's a picture of Christ that I see. He's good. He's good because of his love he pursues. Isn't that amazing? Amen. I'm preaching to myself here. I love it. Um, number two. King Jesus is the anointed son of God. This is something that we get from here. Jesus is the anointed son of God. The anointed king, the promised king, is the very son of God. Many scholars believe that the anointed one speaks for himself when he says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I become your father. Jesus said, And I and, I and the father are one. And standing before Pilate, when asked, uh, Are you the king of the Jews? He said, You have said so. Luke 23. Jesus is the anointed, the Son of God, the one sent by God himself. And number three, King Jesus has authority over earthly authority. This is really important. Verse eight, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. He has authority over life and death, authority over the rulers of the world. While kings and rulers plot, God is not afraid. His anointed son has authority over each and every one of them. That's why we Christians, if you're a Christian in here today, that's why we're Christians first. We're not Americans first. We're not Albanians first. And we're not Mexicans first. We're Christians first. We are part of a new kingdom. We are part of his kingdom. He has authority over all earthly authorities. That's why if someone from any government would come and tell me that I need to not proclaim Jesus as Lord, I am under the citizenship of heaven first and foremost. And I will submit to my king first and foremost. So just think about the term king of kings. You would conclude that it is a king with ultimate authority, right? A king of kings. Lord of lords. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
So that leads us to the last part of our section, the, the third part of our section, our, our response to the king. The psalmist closes with an invitation, verse 10 through 12. Now therefore, O king, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The work of the Holy Spirit is always draw, that of drawing us to the Son. And that's exactly what's happening here. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Let's reason together. Think about what you're doing. How many of you have ever shared your faith or shared the gospel with someone, urging them to put their hope in faith in Christ alone, and have felt something like this, where you're saying, please, think about what you're doing. Think about what you're doing. The Lord of heaven is greater than anything that we can imagine. His love no one can fathom. His wrath is sure. By his mercy, his wrath was poured out onto his son as a substitution for you. If you would but call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved, kiss the son, seek the Lord while he may be found. And finally, he concludes that by saying, blessed are all who take refuge in him. That word blessed is, can also be translated happy. Happy are those who take refuge in him. So believe it or not, we just talked about wrath a whole bunch, right? But this is actually a joyful passage. It's a joyful passage. Happy are those who take refuge under God. He's so powerful and he's so big. And what we can do is we can dilute the gospel down to self-help, to coming and wanting to have a better life now. But God is so much bigger than that. Sin matters. Sin matters. And it separates us from the one who, in whom we find the truest happiness. Happy is the one who takes refuge in him. So, for your happiness, but mostly for the glory of God, seek refuge in Jesus Christ alone. So we've studied for three months many different kings. Some of them were cool. Some of them are not so cool. But there's only one of them that could actually save only one of them can actually satisfy King Jesus. Put your trust and hope in him. As Colossians says, the Lord has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Imagine, imagine a king who fights his own battle. We can. And he himself came to fight the battle that we could not fight so that we might have the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You are our king and we worship you. You paid it all. All to you we owe, Lord Jesus. And where sin has left a, a crimson stain, you washed us white as snow. We pray for the table today of, of communion where we come, we break bread and we remember your sacrifice you fought that battle against sin and death that we cannot fight, that we lose every time. Jesus, you are victorious. You are greater. You're the best king. You're the greatest king. And we are your subjects. We love you. We honor you. We worship you. And we follow you. And Lord, I pray that you rid any temptation in our heart to pass off your word as though it's not important. 
But help us lean in, Lord. Transform us with your word. It's living and it's active. Transform us here at your table, God, as we remember sacrifice of our King. We love you. In your name, amen.